everyone. I'm Trevor Page, the moderator for today's session. Now, I have to welcome you to the first session of a new uh, series of talks that SAGPA has named the Gordon Campbell Memorial Speaker Series. These, of course, are in memory of the late Gordon Campbell, the driving force behind SAGPA for so many years. The series aims at bringing speakers even more distinguished than the distinguished speakers that we're accustomed to here at SAGPA. As usual, our session is being recorded. It'll be available in full, the presentation, that is uh, on the SAGPA website, www.sagpa.ca. The presentation will be broadcast by Shaw TV several times a day for the next week. Please put $12 in the basket on the table in front of you and have someone check that the amount is correct. Please turn off your cell phones or put them in the silent mode. It's fitting that today's presentation is about China. Gordon Campbell was always curious about China and its emergence as a global player. In fact, he took a group of U of L students to China on an educational tour in the early days of China opening up to the outside world. That was back in the mid 80s. Today's presentation deals with China's growing global reach and what that means for Canada and for the international community. Our speaker is Gordon Holden, the director of the China Institute at the University of Alberta. Gordon is also a professor of political science and adjunct professor of business at the U of A. He's also adjunct research professor at China's National Institute for South China Sea Studies. Professor Holden is a former Canadian Foreign Service Officer with 22 years of work on Chinese affairs for the Government of Canada, including five postings in China. In fact, we were both posted in Beijing at the same time in the mid-80s, Gordon at the Canadian Embassy and uh, I at the, um, at the UN, but we didn't know each other in those days. Gordon is not a newcomer to SAGPA. He first spoke to us five years ago on doing business with China. Please welcome Gordon Holden back to the podium. Thank you very much, uh, Trevor. It's my great privilege to be back here in Lethbridge. I was born in southern Alberta. I grew up in southern Alberta. Uh, and then I lived almost everywhere but southern Alberta. I'm now back in the province, at least, although in the, what would have been seen by me as a southern Albertan in the wrong end of the province. But I'm delighted to be there. And I'm glad to come, to come back here and speak uh, to your group. Uh, China has 
Um, it was not my first postings, but I became basically captured in the gravity of China. Uh, early in my career, a few colleagues who joined the Foreign Service at the same time as me said, well, Gordon, you're going to go off and study Chinese for two years at the Chinese University in Hong Kong. Um, you, know, you won't be in the promotion stream. China, yes, there's a lot of Chinese. It's a big country, but it's got a long history. But, quote, it hasn't had any influence in the world, and it has uh, no importance to Canada. And that might have been marginally true in the early 70s during the Cultural Revolution. Uh, I ignored that advice. Two of those people who told me that came back when I was about to retire from the Foreign Service, and one of them said to me, forgetting what he'd said before, um, he had gray hairs as I did, and he said, Gordon, is it too late for me to learn Chinese? I told him, no, it isn't. In fact, it was too late for him to learn Chinese. But uh, I have no regrets whatsoever about um, following things Chinese. I've got just half an hour. and We've got this 5,000 years of Chinese history and 1.4 billion people. I'm not going to run through that history. Um, you can be reassured. But I am going to try and focus on not so much Canada, but really on what China's about in 2017, uh, what's it, what its ambitions are, and what it may mean for us. Fundamental thought is that whatever you think about China, and there's days I'm really happy about things they do, and the days I'm somewhat unhappy, but you can't ignore it. It's going to influence us profoundly in ways which aren't even perfectly clear. This is just a map, um, a modern Chinese map. It's not an ancient map, but it's meant really to show um, how the Chinese view the world. Of course, when we have a map in Canada, it centers North America. This is more the world as seen by China. You notice that we, North America and South America, drift to the very edges. And then you have Africa and, and countries like Britain on the other edge. So in the Chinese mental view, they are at the center of the earth, and uh, we are a little bit at the fringes. And we need to, to, one needs to keep that in mind as we go forward. There's, There's my pointer. Very Sorry good. Thank you very much. I may not use that too often, but it's nice yeah. to have. No, um, here's a reminder, one of the reasons why it's best not to ignore China. There are a lot of Chinese. There are also a lot of Indians. There's 1.4 billion Chinese. It will probably peak at about 1.6 billion um, in, the, in the course of the next 20 or so years. Um, the population's aging quickly, but those numbers are huge. And um, I'm not sure that this is working. Just to check. If you look at that map, yeah, yeah. it is working. There you go. Yeah. Okay, I need to press a little bit harder, yeah. I think. Yeah. There we are. Yeah. Canada is that little strip right there uh, along the edge of the United States. That's not to say that Canada is important. It's my life. It's my country. My children uh, are living in this country. But we need to remember the center of gravity of the world's population is squarely in Asia. And increasingly, the center of the world's economy is in Asia. Right now, depending how you gauge the economy, 45% of the world's economy is in Asia. If you go by nominal GDP, if you go by purchasing power, 52% of the world's economy is in Asia. So that is the region of the greatest concentration of wealth, and it's also the fastest growing. Chinese economy right now is growing somewhere between 6 and 7%. Uh, we can quibble about the numbers. Chinese statistics aren't always reliable, but we now have a pretty good grasp of where they're at because the world is selling a lot of things, and we can judge by the flux of Chinese exports and imports how they're doing. Um, here's just a reminder as well that, of course, we're proud of the fact we speak English, perhaps. It is indeed the language 
most spoken in the world if you count second language users. But if you look at people who speak English as a mother tongue, 1.39 billion Chinese um, speaking Chinese as their first language, and I think that's 527, so less than half as many people speaking English as a native language. So that matters, and we're going to see increasing weight of that. And uh, I was just came back from a canoe trip in near Jasper on Malayan Lake, and I was about to launch my canoe as we, my buddy and I from Ottawa sailed for several days down Malayan Lake in weather not like you have outside here. We had snow and freezing rain at times. But uh, as I was about to launch my canoe, there was a dozen Chinese who appeared from nowhere, Chinese tourists who helped us lift the canoe off the boat and sent us off, and I was quite happy to practice my Chinese and to make them feel at home in Alberta. And if you go to the mountains, of course, you'll find lots and lots of Chinese. They have money. Chinese now spend, as tourists, more money than Americans, Brits, and Germans combined. They're the number one travelers in numbers and number one travelers in, in spending money abroad. Um, so again, if you're in the tourist business or you want to grow your tourism business, um, ignoring China is a mistake. I don't, don't want to give you too many statistics, but sometimes statistics can tell a story. Um, this is percentage of Chinese population, about 20% of the world. Economy, about 13%. I actually think those numbers are a bit larger now, in the mid-teens. Here's the percentage of products that they consume, just China. Concrete, 60% of the world's concrete produced in China. 54% of the aluminum conserved. Now, that isn't all produced there. It's coming from outside. Nickel, 50%. Um, copper, 48%. Steel, 46%. Gold, 23%. Oil, 12%. And that's an opportunity for Alberta, etc. The num Coal, 49%. Half of the coal that is being consumed in the world is being, is being burned in China. And that's why one the primary reason why they're the number one producer of greenhouse gases. And why, is those, why are those numbers so large? Well, it's partly because their economy is growing so quickly, but it's also because they are the workshop for the world. If you're producing a large share of the world's computers, um, whether you buy an, an Apple computer um, or a Japanese computer or a Korean computer, odds are it's at least being assembled in China. And of course, when you go into a Canadian store, whether it's Lethbridge or Edmonton or Ottawa, uh, those stores are full of Chinese goods. So to produce those goods, they need a tremendous amount of raw materials. And that puts China in a very powerful position in terms of the principal buyer. Uh, we and all this Alberta sell almost zero petroleum to China. We don't have the pipelines to, to ship oil to China. There's a little bit goes through the smaller Kinder Morgan pipeline that goes to Vancouver, but almost nothing goes to China from there. However, uh, should China stop growing uh, their importation of oil, or um, hard to imagine if they were to cut back drastically, the, the, whole, the global price of oil would drop. During the world recession in 2007, 2008, uh, when the U.S. economy was in recession, and we were in recession, the main reason that oil prices remained relatively stable in that time, although they were lower, was because of Chinese purchases. So you don't even have to sell anything to China. You're going to be affected by Chinese demand. And that is also true if you're exporting agricultural products. Um, I don't give you too many charts, but this chart tells a story as well. This is how many times wealthier the average American is than the average Chinese? Go back to 1980. Well, the economic reform began in China in 1978. So this is just at the very beginning of the economic reform, where this, the policies have begun to change, but you hadn't really seen much grassroots effect 
um, in the countryside or in the, the country as a whole, 42 times wealthier than the average. Uh, America was 42 times wealthier than the average Chinese. Flash forward 2015, four times wealthier. That's an extraordinary development in the course of, let me see, 35 years, which is the, basically the run of the Chinese reform movement. And it's not finished. U.S. economy is growing relatively quickly um, at 2.5%, 3%. Chinese economy is still growing at almost 7%. So that gap may narrow further. There are now more Chinese billionaires than there are American billionaires. There are more Chinese millionaires than there are American millionaires. The Chinese middle class is now larger than the entire U.S. middle class. That isn't to say that the average Chinese is wealthy. Still, on average, the average American is four times wealthier than the average Chinese. But when you have a number like 1.4 billion, and you have that increasing wealth generation, it has tremendous effects on the global economy. And this will affect Canada, and it will affect Alberta. It is affecting already. Um, I said I wouldn't have too many charts, but here comes another one. But it tells the story again. And here is one of the challenges that China must face. Alberta is facing this as well, and Canada, and the United States. This is the percentage of the population aged 65 and over. Now, where are we now? Right about here. So about 10% of the Chinese population is aged over 65. Well, I'm not being critical of that. I'm 66, so I can't really be critical of someone who's, who's older than 65. But the reality is, starting at about that age, um, the demand for new products begins to decline. The percentage of that population that's still working begins to decline. And uh, that has an economic effect. Um, Japan already is getting right about here. And the Japanese economy has been flat for about the last 20 years. The potential danger for China is that as their population ages, and you see we're just at the point where it takes off, in rapidly aging, the danger for China is that will mean, and it will certainly mean, that their economic growth rate will come down. That doesn't mean that China's economy is about to collapse. It's not going to. It's already got such extraordinary momentum. But it does mean it's going to grow less quickly. And that will, that's the challenge of the Chinese government right now. They have loosened the one-child policy, basically abolished it. You can now have two children um, and uh, for any group. Certain minority groups can have uh, are almost without restriction, but that's not going to turn things around. There's no factory anywhere that turns out 18-year-olds. If you change the policy today, 20 years from now, you may have more workers, but it doesn't affect the situation right now. And quite frankly, for many Chinese, they don't want large families. Apartments are small. It's expensive to pay for education and for health care. Uh, both are state-provided, but there's a lot of costs that fall to the families. And Women are, are working, educated. They're not going to have families or five or six kids. I've seen that in Taiwan where I lived before where there were absolutely no restrictions on family size. But uh, people wanted one child, two child, no children sometimes. The days of huge families in China are long gone. That will have a big impact. And by again, I think the last date there is 2050. Um, that's going to be at a level higher than Canada, I believe, at that point. Because uh, we have immigration to help modify, to some extent, that uh, aging of the population. China is not a country receiving immigrants. Um, here we are. Totally different subject. But again, the, the purpose of the talk is to look at China's global reach. China's not just a military story. Here's the United States. You can see there the, the level. And I think these dates are 
I asked for some pretty up-to-date uh, numbers. 2016, right, so that's, those are very current. United States, sitting here at, um, let me just see, percentage of, of total expenditure, um, and number, you can see the absolute number of the United States. China coming in at about the third. I actually think that their numbers are actually a little bit larger because a very a significant percentage of the U.S. defense expenditures goes to pensions, quite high salaries, etc. China pays less to the soldiers, and they have less of a pension burden, at least at this point. So that is significant. Russia is way behind. Russia is a, still a military great power, but early this year, Canada passed Russia in the size of our economy. I don't think that's going to last because of oil prices rebound, the effect for Russia will be greater than for Alberta, but people still think that Russia is a superpower, not really, not in military terms. I mean, Saudi Arabia spends almost the same amount as Russia on its military, China, a third, and growing. I suspect it will, over time, reach half and begin to, to approach the American expenditures, particularly if the economy continues to grow. And that is an impact. The Chinese now have a base in, in Africa, they're developing a capacity to have a blue water navy. They have an aircraft carrier. Um, they have another one on, on, on the books. Here's one of theirs called the Liaoning. This was um, originally begun in the time of the Soviet Union as an um, aircraft carrier that was going to be used by, belonged to the Ukraine. Uh, the, China, the Chinese had no experience with launching aircraft off aircraft carriers. It's a very complex business. You can't do it overnight. This is a jump version, which means the, the, they get the aircraft get a boost as it goes off that pointed end, but it means you have to use smaller jets. The Chinese have an air arm now that's perfectly capable of using this. They have a second carrier coming and they'll have more. And that gives them an opportunity, given they live by trade. It's a little bit like, I suppose, Great Britain, uh, when it was the dominant economy. Uh, they traded all over the world and they had a Royal Navy to help protect those sea lanes. The United States, exactly the same. So China's really following in a pattern behind those two great powers of, of developing a navy that has reach. And um, here you see, uh, you may read about this, and you're going to read a lot more about it. One belt, one road. Um, the little bit that's confusing about this, the one belt is meant to be China's road and rail system. The road is actually the maritime part. So it's a bit confusing. The road is the sea. Um, but what they mean is the, the uh, silk road. Uh, maritime silk road is the term. What's behind it is uh, China realizing that it wants to break out of its isolation. It has good trade relationships with the outside world, including the United States, Canada, and elsewhere. But it, it does not have good road links or rail links to the rest of the world. Uh, when I was in a far west in a place called Urumqi, city of about six million in the far, far west of China, their railway station they're building there would be an area about the size of maybe the Calgary airport, and I'm including all the runways. It's a massive station. There's only 30 million people in, in Xinjiang in the far west. Why would they need such a large railway station which, for handling freight and people? Because they're building high-speed links to Pakistan, uh, to Burma, uh, to Central Asia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and all the way to Europe. There was a train arrived just about two weeks ago in London that had come directly from China, full of Chinese goods, and then it was going to be refilled with, had gone through the channel from France, and going refilled with British goods heading back to China. Inconceivable 
15 or 20 years ago that there would be a rail network capable of doing that. And the Russians are developing a high-speed ra rail link to connect to China. Uh, I love Chinese trains. I like them when they're in the da days of the coal trains when you took two or three days to come from a place like Urumqi. It took about two and a half days to go to Beijing. About two years ago, I rode the high-speed rail from Guangzhou right down here in the south up to Beijing. That's 2,000 kilometers, the just over 2,000 kilometers. Um, the train ran, was supposed to leave at 10 o'clock. It left at 10 o'clock on the dot. It went at 300 kilometers an hour. It had two stops, and when they said at the first stop in Wuhan, right about there, they said, well, we're stopping for three minutes. And I thought, well, I'm going to get off, take that off and take a picture. They thought, oh, three minutes, maybe best not. I had visions of my computer and my bags hustling off to Beijing. Eight hours later, we were in Beijing. That's like going from Lethbridge to Toronto in eight hours. And if you calculate, if you go at 300 kilometers an hour without a break, you can do that. Great comfort, clean, efficient, and that network is just all over China. And they want to do the same thing to Eurasia. It's an extremely ambitious program. China's already invested some $100 billion US, $100 billion US, that's a lot of change, uh, and there will be more. Um, there are question marks about it. Some countries, like India, are very nervous about it. They see it as a China basically dominating Asia. Um, Europe's at far reach, Africa, there will be connections through the sea portion. It doesn't involve North America yet, but that's a possibility on the maritime side. And there's even talk, which won't happen, I don't think, of Chinese have said, well, we can build a bridge between uh, Russia and Alaska, and we'll pay for it. I don't actually think that makes economic sense. But you will may, may well see um, better maritime links to Canada. So there will be an effect on us. But right now, it's a, it's a powerful, rising country that is reaching out to this big chunk of the world, particularly the Eurasian part, uh, with economic links uh, that will, I think, consolidate uh, their influence in that key part of the world. This is a complex map. I'm not going to try and explain this in detail. But I do quite a bit of work. My institute does quite a bit of work on the South China Sea. I mean, we're in Edmonton. We're, let's see, 2,000 kilometers from the ocean. So it's a bit much to be focused on the ocean, let alone so, uh, in the South China Sea. But it's an important issue, and it's one where there are rival claims. This is the nine-dash line. I think in this case, there may be 11 if you count those dots. These are the Chinese claims, which bring the Chinese maritime claims right up to the shores, almost, of the Philippines, Indonesia, and Malaysia. Um, these other lines are the various other claims by other countries. This area right here has potentially a lot of oil and gas. Um, the Americans are busy um, asserting that this is open sea, this doesn't belong to any one particular country. They don't accept the Chinese maritime claims. So there's a potential for conflict right there at this time. But curiously, and this surprised me, uh, with President Trump actually despite what he was saying during the election campaign, which he often at times seemed to be campaigning against China, since he's been elected and in office, the Chinese and Americans are getting along very well. Uh, the Chinese seem to have decided that he's someone they can work with. And so this, this potential conflict has, has died down to a significant degree. It will not go away, it may flare up again. Many years ago, in the 90s, I sailed from Hong Kong on a Canadian naval frigate HMCS Regina to Ho Chi Minh City or Saigon, right about there. 
and uh, it's a big area. Um, at night, however, you could almost, it almost felt you could walk on the lights from the fishing vessels who put out a large light in which they could spot the, um, um, uh, they could attract the ships. Um, and there are half a billion people who live out of the protein that comes out of that sea, so it's significant. This is Trump uh, with um, Xi Jinping at Mar-a-Lago, um, much anticipated, and from that date, it's almost impossible to find an article in Chinese press critical of Trump. That basically, the official line is, we can get along with Trump. That could change overnight, but for the time being, they're getting along. I'm giving a time warning. This is our prime minister on his first visit last September to China. Trudeau name counts for a lot in China because of his father. I happened to be work with his father on one of the visits to Beijing. And because Trudeau was the one to establish relations with the People's Republic of China, like Nixon, those two gentlemen are honored in, in China. And uh, so that's a big bonus for his son in terms of popularity. It puts him off to a good start. Just quickly, this is Chinese investment in this country. Guess which province has almost all the investment? Some 65% is still in Alberta. It's diversifying, but we've got the lion's share. Not everything is good news. And the lion's share of the fentanyl, which is coming into this country, has just killed over almost 3,000 people in 2016 is coming from China. It's not coming with the approval of the Chinese government, I can reassure you. The fact that China is a major exporting country uh, and that its small companies and individuals can ship things to Canada without much supervision, without much chance of customs catching them, this is a bad side. But the answer to that is, in my view, to deal with the Chinese, to pound on the table and say, look, you need to be a better job of cracking down on the, these production in your country before it comes to our shores and causes us trouble. Um, it's become a more important market. This is from a survey which we did in this year, and it shows what Albertans think about China. Is it an important market? Curiously, and I hate calling this other Alberta, uh, but the town I was born in is also other Alberta. Support in other Alberta uh, for China's important is the highest, higher than Edmonton, higher than Calgary. Here's a question of, we should diversify our economy by trading more with Asia. Um, Strong support in Edmonton, Calgary, but still those numbers are impressive, 70% plus. I think these numbers have influenced by the Trump election in the South where Americans are saying maybe we like NAFTA, but we probably don't. People are saying, well, might not hurt to have another partner. And here, a free trade agreement would be a good thing. Other Alberta, that would include Southern Alberta, 60% saying yes. And then um, we should welcome Chinese investment in, in energy. That's where the support drops right off. And it's less than half in, in uh, other Alberta. Um, North Korea, I'm just going to say a couple of things. Trevor knows North Korea particularly well. He's lived there. Um, we know who this is. The third one of, the third Kim to run that country. Uh, he does a lot of things we don't like, including developing rockets, which are a concern for us. I thought I'd finish here, because there's just a couple more minutes. I still find when I speak to a lot of Canadians uh, who have not been to China or have not been there for some time, their images of a zillion bicycles and people with Mao's little red book. China's in a very different place right now. And if you're an architect, it's probably the best place in the world to be. China, um, if you're a, a large Chinese company, uh, even the Chinese government, but especially a large Ch uh, Chinese company, be it a state enterprise or private company, the money they're prepared to spend on building amazing buildings is extraordinary. And I just got a couple samples here. I thought to end on a high note, um, just to challenge the views there that China is somehow 
a backward place. It is not. It's uneven. There's lots of poor in China, far more than there are here. But the average levels of income now, the average industrial worker um, earns more than a Mexican worker. I went to a Chinese auto plant uh, just a couple of years ago, and I was expecting to see a car chassis covered with workers, with wrenches and screwdrivers and all that, totally robot, totally robotized. Not a person in sight except the guy who's servicing the robots. And that's because it's cheaper to do that than to pay higher wages. I'm not even sure what this is. I've not seen this building. I've been to Yaoning. I have no idea what it does. It seems sort of impractical, a large ring. What do you do with that? Um, there's Shanghai's um, skyline. I was there just in January. Here's Guangzhou, um, Canton. Many Canadians would recognize it as uh, rapidly developing uh, buildings far higher than anywhere in, in Canada. I think find this Harbin Opera House. I have been there. It looks like something from Mars. It's just, I'm not saying that every Chinese building looks like this, but the Chinese are doing extraordinary things. It's now gone back to the situation that has been historically a very advanced world civilization and which I think that we should not ignore. And there are consequences to ignoring it. Here's Hong Kong. Many people here may know Hong Kong, but some of those tallest buildings have gone up since the return of Hong Kong to Chinese sovereignty. Um, here's the CTV headquarters in Beijing. They call it in Chinese kudza, it means pants, because uh, it looks like a men's pair of pants. I think the architect did not mean to divide, like, divide such a thing, but there you are. And here's the Sheraton Hotel in Zhejiang. Again, who else is building buildings like that anymore? Um, the cost of building a structure like that is enormous. It's not practical if you're looking at the cheapest way to create a hotel room, but if you want to make something really beautiful, this is what you can get if you have enough money. Thank you very much.